Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. James, we're up to part four, week four of this series. And you may remember that the book of James was written by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. And he was someone who needed to be convinced about Jesus being the Messiah. It wasn't until after the resurrection that he actually believed that Jesus was who he said he was. James is the oldest written book in the New Testament, and so therefore it's addressing the very earliest issues that the church was facing. And the theme of James is that he wants us to become spiritually mature. He wants us to grow up and not just grow old. In week one, we looked at the mark of maturity being stability. In week two, we looked at the mark of maturity being faith. In week three, the mark of maturity was wisdom. And today, I get to look at the fourth chapter with our mark of maturity being peace. Growing up, I had the, I was going to say privilege, it wasn't really a privilege. I got to share a room with my brother. Did anyone else here get to share a room with their sibling growing up? Was that a peaceful, joyous, wonderful experience for you? No. No one. Anyone. For anyone. Was it a peaceful, joyous experience? No. I've got to say, for me, it wasn't a peaceful, joyous experience. For my parents, it probably wasn't a peaceful, joyous experience either. You see, growing up, I grew up on a farm. We had lots and lots of space. And we had this farmhouse, which was relatively new, and it was big, because most farmhouses are. But it doesn't matter how big the room is. You put two people in it, particularly siblings, and inevitably there's a conflict. Inevitably there's this family battle that goes on. For those who shared a room, who resorted to drawing a line down the middle? You can't come on my side. We tried that, didn't work. We tried, you know what, you can go in the room for this period of time and then you come out, then I'll go in the room for this period of time. Didn't work. See, it doesn't really matter. You put two people, siblings, in the same room, inevitably there's a fight. And I've got to tell you, growing up, when the fight was on, the fight was on. You see, it might have started in the bedroom, but it never stayed in that bedroom. It spilled over into the lounge room. It spilled over outside. Once it started, there was no stopping it. Now, Pastor Tony often talks about the fact that he was the middle child, you know, the poor, neglected middle child. And we all go, oh, middle child. See, I wasn't the middle child. I was the oldest child. And I think that the oldest child gets it far worse than the middle child. You see, I think that for the oldest child, 
you copped all the experiments. You see, when your parents thought they knew what parenting was, but then found out that perhaps they shouldn't do that, you cop that. I cop that. But not only the experiments, growing older, I cop the expectation. Did you cop the expectation? A fight breaks out. It doesn't matter who's right, but you're the oldest. We expect more of you. We expect better of you. I was five years older than my brother, which meant that when it came to settling an argument, one of us was always in tears, usually him. But when he went to mum and dad, I copped it, regardless of what happened, because he was the one that was in tears. It became my fault because you're older and you should know better. I remember one particular fight. I remember, actually, actually, I don't remember what it was about. What I do remember is he was wrong. (laughs) Doesn't matter, he was wrong. And I had this dilemma. Oh, I wanted to punch him. I wanted to punch him so bad. But if I punched him, I knew that he'd go running to mum and then I'd cop it because of that expectation. And I, I, oh. Look, he he had to go down. He had to. But I, this dilemma, what do you do? So I thought, I know, I got him. I got him. I was about 12. He was about seven. I thought, I know what I'll do. I'm going to loosen the front wheel nuts on his push bike. (laughs) But mum, dad, it was an accident. Couldn't be me. So, out came the spanners, made sure he wasn't around. Loosened the front wheels on his push bike. We got, right, this is going to be awesome. (laughs) He is going to get his. And then I thought, well, hang on a sec. There's no point doing that if you don't watch it. <laughs> so I hid around the side of the house. And I don't remember how long he, I was there for, but I knew what he would do because he did the same thing every time. He'd jump on his bike, he rides to the end of the path. So I hid around the side of the house, waiting. Sure enough, I heard him jump on the bike, rush down the concrete path out the front of our house. Oh, this is so awesome. Got to the end of the path, pulled back on the handlebars to come off the end of the path, and I watched as the bars came up and the front wheel kept going. (laughs) Oh, this is so cool. And off the end of the path, front wheel gone, Front forks hit the ground and pitched him straight over the front. Like, yeah! Very, very closely followed by, oh my goodness, he could have been seriously hurt. Yeah! Oh, yeah! Oh! 
Fortunately, he wasn't hurt. Fortunately, we have joked about this afterwards. But at the same time, there was this, oh, you need to know that was the one and only time that I ever did that. He could have been seriously injured. But the question isn't, okay, great, you didn't do it, but why did I do it in the first place? And as we read James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, James makes it abundantly clear why I did it in the first place. James 4, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. What caused that anger to rise up in me against my brother? What caused that vengeance to rise up at me? Was it my brother's fault? No. He might have been pushing my buttons, but the anger and the vengeance was already there inside of me. All that happened was that my brother pushing my buttons revealed what was there. And this is what James is trying to get across to us. You see, as a parent, I see the same thing in my children at home. And every time I see it, I go, ha, 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 that's loosening the wheel nuts. That's where it leads. In our children at home, as lovely as they are, as much of a blessing as they've been to myself and my wife, the reality is, is that there's anger in them. There's vengeance in them. There's hatred in them. And when that hatred is allowed to rise up, we end up in this situation that James is telling us about. But James is actually even going one step beyond that. He's saying, you know what? That very same issue that you recognise so easily in your children is still in you. Now, James is saying that, you know what? You might have gotten a little bit better at masking it. You might not explode like your children. You may not dissolve into tears like your children. You may not go loose and wheel nuts on bikes, but that same desire, 
is still in us. And we need to get to the source of the issue, not just the manifestation of the issue. You see, the reality is, is that we are all in a battle. And we fight this battle on three fronts. The first one, as James was saying, is an inner battle. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But I hate what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I don't know about you, church, but I am so thankful for these words in Scripture The Apostle Paul, the man responsible for writing most of the New Testament, has the same struggle that we do. This inner battle of wanting to do good, but always falling short. You see, in us, we always battle with our doubts. We always battle with our fears. We always battle with our insecurities, our thoughts, our emotions. It's this inner battle that James is talking about. And James says is that this desire, the root of this desire is selfishness. It's for our own pleasures. And that selfishness leads to wrong actions. We kill, we fight, and we quarrel. But James also goes on to say it doesn't only lead to wrong actions, but it also leads to wrong praying. He says that you you don't get because you don't ask, but when you do ask, you do it with the wrong motives. And so we end up praying a prayer which is going to receive a no answer. The second front that we fight battles on are the outer battles. See, just because you are part of this world means that you are being pulled in different directions. There is a battle for your time. It comes from your work. It comes from your family. It comes from your sport. It comes from multiple different places. We feel pulled in different directions. And we need to fight to keep our priorities. Just because you're alive means that you are in a battle for your finance. It is estimated that the advertising industry in Australia annually, every year, is $10 billion. $10 billion a year spent on advertising. You are in a battle for your finance. You are being told constantly what you need. You are being told constantly what you must have. You are being pulled where to spend your finance. Why? 
$10 billion in advertising? The short answer is it works. For all of those companies spending money on advertising, they see that as an investment. Whatever money they put in, they get far more out of it on the other side. This outer battle, we face it in our expectations with our relationships. The boss may give you a deadline, which means that you have to get it done. Your family goes and puts on an event and expects you to be there. Your kids sign up for sport and you think, great, but then you find out that means barbecue duty or canteen duty or other nights that are needed. We fight this outer battle in multiple areas. And this outer battle feeds our inner battle. The third front that we face this battle is a spiritual battle. Now, I don't like giving the devil more credit than he deserves, but we need to know we have a very real enemy. And our very real enemy has very real goals. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And it's a battle that we fight daily. In 1 Peter 5 verse 8, it says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. We all are in a battle today. Now, if we're facing all of these battles, it's no surprise that there are times where we feel anxious, that we feel restless. It's no surprise that we feel harassed and that we feel like withdrawing. And the, I was going to say good news. It's not good news. The reality is, is that these battles aren't going away. These battles are proof of life. All right? Just because you're alive means you will face these battles. The good news, the really good news, is that James outlines how we can have peace, even within these battles. And that is our mark of maturity today. Let's have a look at what James says as to how we can keep our peace. The first thing he says, submit to God. See, the Oxford Dictionary defines submit as to accept or yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another person. See, naturally speaking, we don't like submitting. Naturally submitting, sorry, naturally speaking, we see submitting as a sign of weakness. It's not seen as glamorous. It's not seen as something to be desired. Because the reality is we're all control freaks. We want to be the boss of our own lives. We want to make sure that we're in control. And yet James is saying you will find peace from submitting to God. You see, we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus himself. We see him praying twice. God, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Don't make me go through this. 
but not my will, but your will be done. You see, the issue is one of trust and obedience. Do you trust that the God who created the universe cares more for you than you care for yourself? Do you trust that the God who created the universe has a better plan for your life than you do? Do you trust that the God of the universe has a greater purpose for you than you do? Because if you believe that, submitting to that becomes easy. We think that we will be restricted by submission. But that's not the case. God enlarges our world through submitting to Him. I see this outworked in a couple of different areas. The first is forgiveness. Will you submit to God? Will you submit to God's Word and forgive? But how do I know if they'll get theirs? How do I know if justice will be done? You don't. One thing I do know is that as much as we want justice when someone else wrongs us, when we wrong someone else, we want mercy. And so what Jesus is saying is, will you take the mercy that you want to receive and give it to someone else? Will you submit to my word? Will you lay aside your feeling of entitlement for justice so that you can experience forgiveness and offer forgiveness. The second area I see this outworked in our lives is with our giving, with our tithing. Will you submit to God? Will you trust God that you and God together will do more with your 90% than you can do with your 100% by yourself? Will you submit to God? How do you find peace by submitting to God? We get peace by living a life God's way. The second thing that James draws, submit yourself to God, humble yourself. Now, I know that it is possible to submit yourself, but not humble yourself. How do I know that? One word, roadworks. <laughs> You're in an 80k zone. You're driving along, everything's going nice and smoothly, and all of a sudden you see that 60k sign. And you take your foot off the gas and you go, oh, all right, 60. And then you see the next sign. 40. Come on, 40. All right, submit, 40. And then you see the next sign, 25. So you're doing 25. You look up, there's no one around. <laughs> Roadworks. We can submit outwardly but not humble ourselves inwardly. And James says, if you want to have peace, humble yourself. Now, I think that we actually look at 
humility incorrectly. You see, C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. See, you don't have to put yourself down to be humble. Let's look at the example of Jesus. Jesus was humble, but he wasn't weak or passive. We read in Scripture the way that he addressed the Pharisees. He's not being weak or passive. We see in Scripture that he cleared the temple twice of the money changers who had turned God's house into a den of thieves. He wasn't weak or passive, but he certainly was humble. You see, it was Jesus' humility that allowed him to be treated unfairly and ultimately crucified. It was Jesus' humility that even though he knew he was the Son of God, he was able to be a friend of sinners. You see, humility is actually removing arrogance and pride. It's what we see in James. Humility is knowing that we need help. It's knowing that we need God's help, and it's knowing that we need the help of others that God has put in our world. Humility is recognizing exactly what you are owed. In this world, we're owed nothing. Our sin is actually deserving of death. So let's take away this entitlement mentality because that's where humility will come from. Humility is being confident in knowing who God has called you to be and using that to build up others. How do we gain peace through humility? Because God gives us His grace and His favour when we will humble ourselves. The third thing that we see James say is, draw near to God. If you will draw near to God, He will draw near to us. And he even goes on and tells us exactly how to do this. He says, first of all, wash your hands. That means that we need to ask for the forgiveness of our sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Recognizing that, going back to God and asking for His forgiveness, the Bible says He's faithful and He will forgive. But not only that, we need to ask each other forgiveness. If I wrong someone, then I need to go to that person and I need to ask for their forgiveness. And there may be an opportunity for restitution because our sin affects our vertical relationship with God, but also our horizontal relationship with everyone else. James also says, purify your hearts. Wash your hands. Let's deal with our sin. Purify your hearts. Be single-minded in your devotion to God. I don't know about you. I like getting up early in the morning. I like taking the dog for a walk. 
It's the time that I can spend with God. And yet, at the same time, I also know there is an attack on that time. As it's gotten colder, it's become too easy to go, no, the dog can wait. Who loses? The dog loses, but it's not about the dog. Ultimately, I lose if I do that because I rob my time with God himself. Be single-minded in your devotion. If you've set a time that you're going to read and pray, and I encourage you to do that, be single-minded. Don't let anything else get in the way of that time. If you have committed yourselves to a connect group, and I encourage you, commit yourselves to a connect group. Don't let anything else get in the way of that time. Be single-minded in your devotion. Getting to church. No, no, that's Sunday. That's the given. Be single-minded in your devotion. In doing so, what you'll find is that you will gain peace from Jesus or from God's perspective. If you are single-minded in your devotion, you will get God's perspective on the situations that you are walking through. It won't change the situation. It'll change how you view the situation. And that can bring peace. The fourth thing that James says, resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee. How do you do this? I'm glad you asked. First thing, fill up. How do you resist the devil? Fill up. Who's ever gone shopping while they're hungry? As you're walking down the aisle, you're hungry. All of a sudden, those chicken crimpies end up in the trolley. The chocolate ends up in the trolley. The chips end up in the trolley. How do you resist the devil? Fill up. You see, the reality is when we are physically hungry, we are drawn to things that we wouldn't otherwise buy. And when we are spiritually empty, we are drawn to things that we wouldn't do any other time. So fill up. Fill up. Draw near to God. The closer you are to Jesus, the easier it is to resist the devil. How do we resist the devil? Believe what God says about you. See, we all believe something. We all believe that what others say about us. How about we believe the best? How about we believe what God says about us? You see, in John 1.12, it says, I'm a child of God. In John 15.15, I am Christ's friend. Romans 6, I've been set free from sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I am a new creation. Ephesians 1.1, I am a saint. Philippians 3.20, I'm a citizen of heaven. Ephesians 4.24, I'm righteous and holy in Christ. Believe what God says about you. 
and you'll be able to resist the devil. In all of those things, they are positional. You accept Christ, that's the reality. Done. Bought. Paid in full. Yours. What we need to do is apply that into our lives. Believe what God says about you. How do we resist the devil? Take the battle to him. Don't flirt with sin. Growing up on the farm, my grandfather also had a farm. He had cattle. Now, cattle are really bad on fences. They'll push through, they kill fences really quickly. So my grandfather had electric fences. And as kids, I can remember playing a game. Who can get closest to the electric fence? The logical outcome of who can get closest to the electric fence means someone got zapped. Now, sometimes it might have been just because they got too close. Sometimes there might have been a helpful nudge. And We play the same game with, game with sin all the time. We keep saying, okay, where's the line? Is it there? Is that the line? Is that the line? Is that the line? How, how close can I get to the line? Is that it? Is that it? Is that it? Oh, there it was. Don't flirt with sin. Resist the devil. Finally, fight. How do you resist the devil? You fight. See, there's no other option. You're not going to be able to bargain with him. You're not going to be able to talk your way out of it. You've got one option, fight, fight. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18 talks about the armor of God. I don't have time to do that now. And everyone went, oh, thank goodness for that. It's a whole preach in and of itself. But it does outline both what our defensive armor is and what our offensive weapons are. The only way to resist the devil is fight. In Revelations 12, 11, it says they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What you say over your situation is critical. Whatever you're going through, what you say about it is your reality. So, that being the case, why don't we speak life over that situation? Why don't we speak overcoming over that situation? Why don't we speak the word of Jesus, the name of Jesus over that situation? We overcome the devil through our testimony, through prayer, and through the word of God. And so... If the Word of God is one of our offensive weapons, guard the time jealously that you have with it. Is prayer one of, sorry, if prayer is one of our offensive weapons, guard the time jealously. How do we get peace when we're resisting the devil? We get peace through overcoming. If the band can come. 
there is no doubt that we are all in a battle. The true test of the battle is not, are you winning? The true test of the battle is, have you kept your peace through the battle? You'll keep your peace by submitting yourself to God, humbling yourself, drawing near to God, and resisting the devil. In his final words to the church at Philippi, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 